Amen. Well, good morning to you and uh, welcome. This morning we turn to the Bible uh, as we return to 2 Corinthians. And so I invite you, if you have your Bible, to meet me in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll read from verse 1 through verse 13. If you are newer to FAC uh, and we have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I serve as the lead pastor here. Uh, it would be a great privilege and an honor to meet you after service if we haven't yet. I, I look forward to new faces here, uh, and I do try to make it, uh, uh, make it a point to make you feel as welcome as possible. Uh, and it would be a great help to me if you would uh, make yourself known. It's, it's a rather large place with many people, many faces, and uh, as you make yourself known, it does make it easier. And so please don't be shy. Um, just a reminder as well as Pastor Scott has already mentioned this morning that next week our first service time will change to 9.30. Uh, so if it's your typical pattern to join us uh, for first service, um, please note starting next week the new time for first service is 9.30. Uh, second service will remain at 11 o'clock. Uh, for this morning, uh, let's go ahead and turn to God's Word. We'll read from 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1. Through verse 13, I invite you to follow along as I read, and then uh, we'll have a, a word of prayer before we study. Verse 1, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and not yet, uh, yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that your very word, which called all things to life and motion and gave us our breath, is the very word that we come to now in Scripture that these words on the page are breathed out by you and are profitable, as it says, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. As we turn to the Bible, would your spirit be at work in our hearts and conform us into the image of Jesus? It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. In the early 1780s, at the young age of 23 years old, Charles Simeon was appointed as a clergyman at Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, England. Uh, this was Simeon's first pastorate, and for several years, it was a dream of his 
to, to have the pulpit to preach at this church, which was situated at the heart of Cambridge University that educated the best and the brightest in England. Um, however, uh, Simeon's sky-high dreams didn't last long. They quickly crash-landed into the ground as he took on the role because there was a significant faction of the congregation, including many of its key leaders, that had somebody else in mind for the job. And so this actually created quite a tense and awkward standoff between Simeon and his church. Uh, You see, in Simeon's particular denomination, it was the denomination as an organizational body which had the authority to install pastors and had the authority to control what happened on Sunday mornings, the Sunday services. But it was the local church wardens that had the authority over the facility. And so Simeon could not be kept from preaching during the services and leading the services. But the wardens on Sunday mornings would actually lock the pew boxes. If you've ever been in a church in England that's centuries old, you'll notice that the pews are, that the seats are located in these wooden frames and they had doors that you could actually open and you would shut. They called them boxes. And so effectively when the wardens would lock these pew boxes, They eliminated all of the seating capacity. They eliminated all the seats for services on Sunday mornings. Anybody actually attending the church would have to stand in the aisles to listen to Simeon preach. And to make matters even worse, the wardens would lock the church building the rest of the week. And so any meetings or sermon prep that Charles Simeon would have to do, uh, he would have to do it from his tiny apartment. This standoff between Charles Simeon and his church lasted for 10 years. I've found this story oddly comforting, right? On the rough days, I've often told myself that as long as I'm not getting locked out of FAC, uh, I'm doing okay. I'm doing just fine. There are few men who could endure the resistance from their own people like Charles Simeon, but endure he did. And eventually... God softened the hearts of his, of his people, of his congregation. And Simeon would go on to lead Holy Trinity Church for 54 years. He would pastor the church until the day he died. We've been traveling through the book of 2 Corinthians uh, today, and God has used a circumstance to express deep theology and deep character of ministry. It's filled with deep theological truths, and it really expresses the realistic character of ministry. But the book is ultimately about and was written because of a relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. Much like Charles Simeon, Paul had to oppose or had to endure an imposing faction of congregants in the church, the very church that he himself fathered, that he planted. Now we learn actually later on in chapter seven that a good portion of the church had repented from the way that they had treated Paul before this book was was written, but there is still some that are holding out. There are still some that are rejecting him as a messenger of reconciliation, as a messenger of Jesus. And Paul makes his appeal to those people in this passage. 
in this passage about reconciliation between the church of Corinth and Paul comes on the heels of a passage that we looked at two weeks ago where Paul spoke about reconciliation with humankind and God. Now, Paul does this purposefully to show us that the birthplace of true reconciliation with each other is uh, begins in our reconciliation to God. That as our relationship with God is restored, it should have an impact on our relationships with other people. Our reconciliation with God should have an effect on how we go about our other broken relationships that we have with others. Paul makes the appeal to the church in Corinth in verse 1 of our passage when he says, do not receive the grace of God in vain. God has given grace. In other words, he has shown favor in the work of Jesus on the cross as Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's grace. There is this undeserved generosity directed towards us and directed towards the Corinthians. And Paul instructs them, appeals to them, do not receive this grace in vain. The phrase in vain means uh, without effect, with no result or, or to no avail. Paul's concern is that God's grace will not have the proper and meaningful impact on their lives as it should. To receive God's grace in vain means that you you have acknowledged God's grace, but it doesn't seem to have taken root in your heart. It hasn't transformed you. It hasn't changed you as it should. Paul is essentially calling on the Corinthians to act in a way that is consistent with having received the grace of God. As an ambassador of Christ, the messenger of Jesus himself, their loyalty to Paul actually becomes sort of a test of faith for them. And Paul grounds his point by quoting Isaiah 49.8 here in verse 2 about the favorable time of salvation. If you were to go to Isaiah 49, that whole section, you would find that that God answered the prayers of what's called the servant. It's a prophet, a messenger, uh, and, and how God came to the servant's aid. The servant was despised and rejected by the nations. And then God promised that there would be a vindication. There would be a day, a favorable time, a time of salvation. Isaiah pointed, he wrote, pointing forward to the day where vindication would occur. And Paul says, that day has happened. There's nothing else to look forward to. The day of salvation is here. It's, it's, it's now. The, the day of salvation that was promised in Isaiah to the servant is today. God's favor has arrived. It was inaugurated in Christ. Christ is the servant. And so now is the time to reconcile with God. And now is the time, Paul says, for you to reconcile with me. There's a sense of danger, actually, an urgency here, almost to say, if you don't accept me as a messenger of Jesus, I'm not sure you understand the gospel. I'm not sure if you really understand God's grace. So today is the day to accept God's grace 
and to reconcile. And with that appeal, Paul begins a defense of his ministry once again. In verse 3, he writes that we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. In other words, Paul says, I have done nothing. I have done nothing to discredit the ministry. Even though some have tried, his ministry cannot be legitimately criticized on the basis of Paul's conduct. And in fact, quite the opposite. Everything that Paul has done and gone through actually lends to its authentication as the list that follows will show. Paul says, I've done done nothing to delegitimize my ministry. There is nothing that you can point to that discredits what I do. In fact, the experience the experiences that I have endured tell a different story. He's saying, consider for a minute all that I have been through, all the things that I have endured. Almost to say, if I, if I wasn't authentic, how could I have endured such things in the way that I did, in which I did? His ministry is actually one to be commended because of what he defines as a great Endurance, not just an endurance, but a great endurance. Paul lets his own experience and work really speak for itself. And he essentially gives them in the passage 28 reasons. Here are 28 reasons why the Corinthians should be confident in Paul's ministry. And these 28 words or phrases, reasons, can really be broken up into four sections. We'll walk through each one together this morning as proof that his ministry is not to be criticized, but rather commended. He he begins in the first part with a list that uh, St. John Chrysostom calls a blizzard of troubles. Now here in Erie, we know a thing or two about blizzards, right? We know what that looks like. And so the next time we experience one come uh, December, or if we're hopeful, January, Consider the flurry of troubles that that Paul endured. The storm of troubles in this first section can even be broken down into three different parts, three different triads, if you will. Three different types of experiences that he had great endurance through. First, there, there is a trio of general troubles in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities or disasters. Now, these these are troubles that came about as the very byproduct of ministry, a byproduct of following Jesus. Remember, Jesus told his disciples. He told them the night that he would, before he would be, before he would die and the night that he arrested, that in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have troubles. Disaster comes naturally. It's to be expected when one follows Jesus on the road to a cross. There is a certain level of hardship and pain that just goes with the territory of being a believer and living your life on the narrow path, the narrow road as called by God. And once again, this authenticates Paul because it's narrow for a reason. Because there's not many people that want to walk down that road. It's narrow. It's the first trio. The second trio of hardships were troubles that were actually brought upon by other people. 
how they responded to Paul. Paul had great endurance in beatings, in imprisonments, and in riots. We actually see each of these in Paul's life listed elsewhere in Scripture. We can go to other areas of Scripture and say, yes, this is where Paul experienced these things multiple times, right? Later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks about the beatings, right? about how he was beat almost to the point of death, how at the hand of the Jews, he received 39 lashes five different times, and how three times he was beaten with rods, and once he was stoned and left for dead. Scripture lists three different times that Paul was arrested and imprisoned, and no doubt there have probably been many more. And Paul was just the constant object of attention for riots in several cities. As we worked through Acts together uh, last year and in the beginning of this year, we saw that there were riots that broke out in response to Paul in Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, here in Corinth, and even in Jerusalem. So we see in this third triad that Paul has a very long track record of abuse, physical abuse from other people. And then finally, there's a third trio here. Paul had great endurance through hardships that commentators would say were self-inflicted. They were actually brought upon by himself. He experienced great endurance in labors and in sleepless nights and in hunger. You see, the remarkable thing about this trio is that these are ones that he could have controlled if he truly wanted to. He could have put an end to these things. But he willingly worked to exhaustion and went without sleep and skipped meals to do gospel work. Paul was a workhorse who was willing to do what it took, even if it meant self-sacrifice, to get the job a blizzard of troubles. The, 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 this triple trio of troubles give us a full picture of what it was like to walk in Paul's shoes as an ambassador of Christ. Truly was a blizzard of troubles from every perspective. But what's more important in this passage is not the type of hardships that Paul endured or that he even endured them but rather how he endured them, which is what he lists next here in verses 6 through 7. How did he go about enduring such hardships, this blizzard of troubles? How did he weather the storm and stand firm? He endured them by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by genuine love, by truthful speech, by the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, he says. Let's briefly walk through each of these. He endured by purity, or in other words, an, an uprightness in, in life. He was, he was blameless. He was still a sinner. He called himself the chief of sinners. But, but, but in all things, he tried to be blameless. He tried not to do anything that somebody could point blame on in his conduct. He endured by knowledge. This isn't just uh, merely an intelligence, just knowledge in the general sense. It's more specifically a knowledge of God and a knowledge of God's ways. He endured because he had a knowledge of God's plan. He had a healthy understanding 
of God's sovereignty and God's providence. And he knew that whatever hardship came his way was by his father's hand. And if it was by his father's hand, then it was for his good. He endured by knowledge. He endured by patience. The word here means uh, to be long-tempered. It was often used in the Old Testament to describe God's attitude towards his own people, his forbearance towards the Israelites as they failed God over and over and over again. So, so here, Paul endured by the loving patience towards those who should have provoked anger or irritation out of Paul. He was patient with them. And next, Paul endured by kindness, or in other words, goodness. But he, he had a, a genuine goodness towards people, regardless of how they treated him. He wished goodwill to people. He always sought to be good to people and not retaliate. Paul endured by the Holy Spirit, or, or more specifically, the presence of the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that one in a moment. Paul endured by genuine love or a sincere, unhypocritical love towards others. And then finally, Paul endured by truthful speech, or more literally, the word of truth. This doesn't merely um, point to the truthful character of Paul's speech, but to the gospel. The gospel is the message that is God's truth. It is the word of truth. Paul endures by preaching the word of truth. Paul endures by keeping the gospel front and center in his ministry. And finally, Paul endures by the power of God. Now with the inclusion of the power of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit in this list, we come to find that these other items are are not merely a list of virtues. You look at that as an outsider and say, Paul was a very virtuous person. That's how he endured. And these are certainly virtues, but they are a result of God's power and God's presence. Right? They, They are not... Um, natural virtues, but actually gifts of the Holy Spirit. They are inner graces that were provided to Paul through the hardships. The Spirit is the source of Paul's purity and the source of Paul's knowledge and patience and kindness and genuine love. These are all expressions of the power and the presence of God in his life. And so Paul doesn't endure through this self-generated virtuous life, he does not endure uh, just by merely positive thinking. Rather, Paul's endurance is a product of God's active power in his life. And that right there is what sets believers apart from the rest. Because there are many ungodly people who exhibit remarkable endurance in the face of adversity. One commentator writes that there are no doubt revolutionaries and terrorists who will endure beatings and imprisonments and even death for their causes, but none of them can do it in the sweet endurance of the graces of the Holy Spirit. He writes, sweet and spirited endurance testifies to the reality of Christ and that he is worth our trust and service. So what we see here with Paul is not just somebody with a chip on his shoulder. But he doesn't have just like this grit of I'm going to I'm going to do this by my power. He doesn't even go about it with this this like angry attitude of I'm going to show you. 
I've got something to prove. Paul said, I, I got nothing to prove. I, I, I can't do this. He doesn't even carry about a victim mentality of woe is me. Look how everybody has treated me. No, no, his endurance rested in the sovereign presence and power of God. See, it is, it is possible to endure in this life in a self-righteous manner and in a resentful manner. It's possible to, to endure with bitterness and joylessness and in, in that kind of grit, I'll show you attitude. But Paul endures instead through the fruit of the Spirit. And what we see is that in this world, that suffering in and of itself doesn't reveal Christ in the world, but rather how we endure the suffering under the influence of the Spirit. Enduring suffering under the influence of the Spirit is what proclaims Jesus' glory. So it's important to note even through all Second Corinthians that Paul never glorifies suffering in and of itself. Suffering is a byproduct of the ever-present sin in the world. He doesn't glorify suffering, but he does glorify the power of God and the presence of God, which produces in him and equips him with what he refers to as the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Roman soldiers in Paul's day, they carried a sword or a spear in the right hand for attacking, and they would carry a shield in the left hand for their defense. And they were ready and equipped to face any kind of challenges of battle that were imminent. In the same way, Paul was equipped by God with weapons of what? Righteousness. You see, endurance rides on righteous living. Paul would tell his apprentice Timothy that the good conscience is essential for fighting the good fight. Righteousness is at the heart of gospel endurance. It's righteous, upright living. The the, the holy life that God empowered in Paul, which equipped him for battle and sustains him through all circumstances, good or bad, which takes us to the third section of this list that Paul gives. Right In the first section, we saw what Paul endured. Then we just looked at how Paul endured. And now we see when Paul endured. Verse 8, when did he endure? He endured through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. Honor and dishonor refers to the personal treatment of Paul, whereas slander and praise referred to what is said about him, especially behind his back when he wasn't around. So essentially what this means is that Paul endured while while outfitted for battle with the weapons of righteousness in all circumstances, regardless of how people responded to him. No matter what other people did to him or thought of him, Paul didn't change what he did on the basis of other people. He's saying, let them react how they might. It doesn't make a difference to me. I am going to take responsibility for my own actions and I will walk in righteousness. You see, I'm not responsible for that. I am not responsible for how they will react. They will answer for themselves someday. But as for me, Paul says, I will do what God has called me to do regardless of how they respond. If they praise me, great, but it doesn't change anything. I'm not going to alter or change what I do based on the people that are singing my praises. And if they slander me, no big deal. It's not going to stop me from doing what I need to do, what Jesus has called me to do. 
Paul embraces this mindset of I'm called to do something and I'm called to obedience and faithfulness. And whether you honor me or dishonor me, whether you slander or praise me, I will walk with great endurance by the power of the Spirit. And as Paul embraces that mindset, it actually sets up quite an anomaly. His ministry is pictured in the fourth and final section of those 28 reasons as a paradox. He explains what his ministry looks like and what it really is, right? How his ministry and life are perceived a certain way by the naked eye, when in all reality, his ministry and life are opposite of what is perceived by the rest of the world. There's a paradoxical nature to Christian ministry, to, to, to his life, that only those who understand the workings of the Spirit can perceive, can see. And, and so he shares what are called antitheses, seven antitheses or contrasts from the end of verse 8 through verse 10. And in all seven phrases, the first part of the phrase is how one who does not know God and does not know his purposes would perceive Paul, would see Paul's life. And it's all negative. Right? According to public opinion, Paul says, I'm an imposter or one who misleads, one who deceives. He's a bad character, that Paul, according to public opinion. Second, he is unknown which means that he's not worthy of of recognition. Don't give him the time of day because his status really isn't worth your time. Paul who? I I don't know who this Paul is. He's not known. Third, he appeared as one who was dying. Paul was literally slowly dying due to his repeated beatings and illnesses and stresses and dangers. look, Look at the poor man. Look how weak he is. He is literally slowly dying. Fourth, he was viewed as punished. Or in other words, he was cursed. He faced what the world would perceive as godly punishment. They would look at Paul and say, no righteous man would ever experience that. Why would God allow that to happen? If he was truly righteous, he wouldn't be punished like he is. Somehow God has cursed this man because that was the logic, especially in the Old Testament, that God only was for the servant, right? For his messenger and would richly bless him. And obviously Paul is not blessed. And so he's cursed. God is punishing him because there's something going on in his life. There's some kind of hidden sin going on in his life that he is experiencing all of these things. That is how the world viewed Paul as punished. Fifth, he was viewed as sorrowful as if his life was an empty shell of continual sadness due to all the hardships. He's marked by sorrow. And finally, sixth and seventh, he was viewed as poor and having nothing. He had no resources for himself and he had nothing to offer society as a whole. Paul was viewed as one that contributed nothing to the greater community. Paul has no tangible value to the world in which he lives. You look at how the world viewed Paul and say, that man is to be pitied. He he has nothing going for him. But where the first part of each phrase portrays how people saw Paul, the second part of each phrase describes the deeper reality of Paul's life, which others don't see because they are blinded to the workings of God. 
And Paul says in confidence, I can understand why you think this ministry is illegitimate and weak because you only see the outward appearance. You've been blinded to see the deeper realities. And so let me inform you how it really is. It may seem that I am an imposter, but I am true. I am truthful in my words, in my conduct. My message to you is true. I may be unknown to you, but I am known. I'm known to the most important person there is. I'm known to God. He knows me. It may look as though I'm dying, but behold, I live, is what it literally says. I'm Behold, I live. Here I am. I am more alive in Christ than you could ever imagine. I am punished, but I am not killed. I'm still kicking. I'm I'm still here. I haven't gone anywhere. It may appear that my life is full of sorrow, but my life is actually marked with joy. I rejoice. I rejoice through these things. And you may think that I am poor and possess nothing, but I have far greater riches to offer you. And I possess a great treasure that is far more valuable than any material possession that I could ever attain here on earth. That is what Paul's ministry truly is. You take these 28 words and phrases and see that Paul completely just unloads his heart to the Corinthians. Almost to say, look at all the things that I have gone through so that you may know the truth of God's grace. I love you, and I do not want you to receive God's grace in vain. And so in advocating for his own legitimacy, Paul is not trying to bolster up his self-esteem. He's not trying to recover his ego. As he mentioned, he doesn't have this compelling need to be liked by others. No, he is trying to keep the Corinthians from judgment. He wants them to see that if they reject Paul as a messenger, there is a very good chance in their heart of hearts that they have rejected God as the one who sent him. And so having demonstrated his blameless and sacrificial character, he makes this deep, personal, emotional appeal for the church's affection in the closing verses of the passage. This is one of the most heartfelt moments in all of Paul's letters. Paul tells them, we have spoken freely to you, openly to you. Or in other words, we haven't held anything back. Our hearts are are wide open to you, which means that we have embraced you lovingly, that we have welcomed you lovingly. There is room for you in our hearts. So you are not restricted by us, you see, but you are restricted in your own affections. The word restricted here means to, 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 to be constrained. It means narrow. It's to be in a place that, that is cramped for, for, for space. Right? It, it, this is more than just a withholding of affection. No, the sense that we get is that some of the Corinthians' hearts are constrained in their feelings for Paul, and Paul is finding himself squeezed out. And so Paul places the responsibility for the conflict on the Corinthians. You guys are the ones that are responsible. When a dating couple breaks up, 
one of the worst breakup lines of all time is when one says to the other, I'm sorry, but it's not you, it's me. It's not you, it's me. Paul here flips that and says, it's not me, it's definitely you. This, this is you. You're the one that is pushing me out. And then in verse 13, Paul shows a most intimate and affectionate side of him. We see the intensity of his feelings when he writes, in return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Paul is saying, I am like a father to you. And I have opened up my heart to you as a father opens his heart to his children. And so would you return the favor? Would you open your heart to me as well in the same way? See, the tone here is not one of rebuke or anger or rage. It's affectionate. It's tender. It's fatherly. It's pastoral. Paul says, just open your heart to me. I long for you to open your heart. It's an open invitation. Now, ultimately, while this passage is about the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians, it serves as an echo. It's an echo of the open invitation that a heavenly father has towards his creation. As Jesus endured the cross, by the power and the presence of the Spirit, it may appear that there is only death, but there is actually life in his name. And now, through Christ, God the Father has freely offered up his word and has opened his heart wide open to us. And he calls us not to squeeze him out. He calls on us not to resist him, but rather to enter into his warm and loving embrace. God's heart is open to you. Would you this day open your hearts to him and embrace God as he has embraced you? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful. that you have opened your hearts to us, Father, but in our sin, there are many things that crowd the space. Lord, I, I, I pray, Father, that you would reveal the dark parts of our heart, Lord. Your word tells, says the prayer, search my heart, O God. Search my heart, O God. And if there's anything grievous in your eyes, would you make it known, Lord? That is a dangerous prayer, but it's an essential prayer. Father, if there are things in our hearts, written on our hearts, that crowd the space, would you reveal them? And would we turn them over to you? Would, they, would, would we commit them to you? And would we feel not your rage, but in believing in Jesus, would we feel your love, your loving fatherly presence, and your tender care towards us? And in your holy name I pray, amen.